Amen. Thank you, David. Um, good morning, everybody. Good to see y'all here this morning. Uh, my name is Dave. I'm going to go ahead and start this guy because um, my stopwatch, because as you can see, we have a ton of verses to get through this morning. And um, actually, by way of introduction, I have a stutter. So just a heads up if you're new or you've never heard me preach before, I want to make sure that y'all know what that is. And um, also, all the more reason to have the stopwatch going, because a guy with a stutter trying to preach through 50 verses is, I mean, come on, that's messed up. But um, guys, I'm really excited to be here this morning. It's great to have you all here. Um, there's a lot we have to cover this morning, and so um, we're going to get into it pretty quickly. Again, there is a, this is a baptism service, and it's just a great opportunity for us to respond to what we hear, to the good news of the person and work of Jesus. And um. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn in your Bible to uh, Mark chapter 14. And um, while you're turning there, if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and slip your hand up and uh, hold it up and keep it up high. And somebody will get you a Bible. And um, as we say every week, también si necesitas en español, um, tenemos solamente diga español. Um, so we want to make sure some people prefer to read the Bible in Spanish, and so um, just say Espanol. And um, in fact, my son, while we were singing, he said, Dad, I really wish we could sing um, songs and worship in Spanish again, like we did a couple of weeks ago. And I said, I know, buddy, me too. And we're not there yet necessarily where we can do that consistently, but um, he actually speaks fluent Spanish. So I said, maybe you can help um, when that day comes. But um uh, excited, again, for what we have here going on. Um, and while you're turning with me and Mark, let me just set up um, for where we're headed, okay? Because as you see, we're covering 50 verses, and um, we've been marching along, and, and um, we spent a couple weeks so far in chapter 14, and we're just going to knock the whole rest of chapter 14 out today. So let me tell you where we're headed, kind of right out of the gates. What we'll see um, as we navigate through a lot of stuff is we're going to see pointedly that Jesus is the only way. There's no other way. There's no other way to life. There's no other way to true, real, foundational transformation. And, and so we'll see that specifically through a contrast, if you will, where we'll, we'll see most pointedly one of Jesus' closest followers, Peter, will show what it looks like to have false courage and false faith. And that's the big idea that we're going to see is false courage and false faith up against the true faith and the true courage of Jesus. And so you and I can really connect with Peter as we walk through this, all right? We can't just kind of throw him under the bus and kind of sit back and look afar. The, the author will invite us to see ourselves and how Peter presents himself. And so what we'll see is we'll see in Peter or in us, we'll see, we'll see cowardice. And then we'll see as we look to Jesus, we'll see true courage. And then we'll see, we'll see faithlessness surface that you and I can relate with. And then we'll see the faithfulness of Jesus. And then we'll see ultimately that you and I are weak, but he is strong. That will lead us back to the place where we have to wrestle with the truth that Jesus truly is the only way. That religion or good effort isn't enough. That seeing and responding to and trusting the faithfulness and the courage of Jesus is our only hope. Okay, so that's where we're headed. Um, kind of gave you the big idea right out of the gates. We're going to get into it. Let me go ahead and pray for us, okay, as we, uh, as we get into God's Word. 
Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be here together. Um, Lord, I don't know where everybody's coming from this morning, but I know that we're all in this place in this time by your direction and your oversight. Lord, I pray and I trust that you have something for us or that you want to reveal to us. For some of us, Lord, refresh anew the good news of Jesus alone being the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, for some, perhaps for the first time this morning, perhaps even someone just came in and didn't even plan on being here, but they're here. Lord, you're going to speak to them and you want to reveal the good news of recognizing our own insufficiency and the, and the sufficient good news of Jesus. And so, Lord, um, again, we trust that your word does not return void. And so we're, we're excited and expectant that you will speak to us through it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's, uh, let's just get right into it here. Mark. 14, picking up in verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So I'm going to just kind of read and go, read and explain okay, as we go. That's kind of how we're going to walk through this thing this morning. And um, just picking up there where we're at, last Sunday was the Last Supper, or the Lord's Supper, as it's called. And we explained this is what communion is, and this is where Jesus said he broke bread and said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took a cup and he poured it out, and he said, this is the blood of my covenant for the covering of your sins. And then, um, and then they ended that, that meal together, and Jesus um, said that he would be betrayed, and they left. And then as, is, as we all do, when we're done with a meal, we just break out in song, right? And so, so that's what they do. Um, no, but this was, was customary, specifically after the Passover Seder, was to, was to sing a hymn together, was to sing a song together. So they sang um, together, and Jesus, right, life of the party is like, you're all going to betray me. But he says this, and we'll see consistently going on, to reveal his authority and his power and his unwavering confidence. And even in a way that we'll see here, his compassion. Because he's lovingly warning his followers that he knows what they're about to do. So his faithfulness and his courage and his steadfastness will inform as they're waywardly walking through life and they're ultimately rejecting him. He's saying, I know what you're doing. And, and, and God's plans are still going forward. And so he's lovingly warning them. And then he continues on. And he gives, and he shows in verse 28, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And so he's telling them what's going to happen, okay? They don't hear this good news, but Jesus is telling them on the, on, the, on the forefront. And then he continues in verse 29. But Peter said to him, even though they'll all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Okay, so Jesus says, you're all going to deny me. And then Peter, arrogantly, okay, revealing what false faith and false confidence looks like. Peter stands up and is like, no, Jesus, I won't. I won't do all these other punks might, but not me, right? He kind of throws all his friends under the bus. He's like, these other guys, they might do, but not me. I won't. And then Jesus, I love it. It's like, actually, you will. In fact, three times. But again, let's just kind of dig in because we could think, you know, Peter, silly Peter, so arrogant. But you and I do this 
You and I like to go before God and say, I got this. In fact, in the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, what the Bible calls the fall, when sin entered into the world in its most true form, what happened is mankind, Adam and Eve, our first parents, said, God, no thanks, we got this. Because God said, life is created where you would reflect me, where you would be my image bearers, where you would live all of life dependent on me. That's how life was created to be. And yet they said, no thanks, we got this. We don't trust your ways, we don't trust your plan, we're going to figure it out on our own. That's where sin entered into the world. And sometimes we disguise ourselves even with religious things, even with good intentions, just like Peter is doing here. And we say, no thanks God, I got this. Like, we don't need you, okay? We're going to go from here. And that's what Peter is doing here. He's saying, he's saying no thanks, well, I'll, I'll do this. And, and, and so, so spend some time with me, if you will, kind of thinking inwardly, thinking honestly. When is the time that you have carried that posture? Before Almighty God. You said, yeah, you know, we would never say it outwardly. We would never vocally say, no, I don't need God. But how we live our lives. I know for me, many instances came to mind. But one in particular. Um, when I was a sophomore in high school, I was like, I was a good Christian kid. I was involved in Fellowship of Christianity, um, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Um, and uh, see, I was super involved. I didn't use the name. No, I was really involved in all these things. I was, I was like a good church kid. Um, parents, you know, really like wanted their kids to hang out with me, all these things. And, and I remember emphatically, as some of my friends were kind of dropping like flies, as often happens in, you know, high school, and kids were going out and were hooking up and doing drugs and drinking and doing all these, you know, different things. I remember, I remember to this day, as a, as a high school sophomore, declaring, not me, I'll never do that. I could never, because I, I saw some of those things break up my own family, and I saw the effects, and I, and, and I missed God's grace, and I replaced it with my own false courage, my own ideas, my own faithfulness. I was like, I'll never do that. And then, so I was in Arkansas at the time, and, and then I moved here to Tucson, Arizona, and in that moment, um, God kind of, I think, um, in His grace, kind of pulled back some of my Christian community, some of the evidences of His grace that really my life was built upon, and I was now out here in Tucson, Arizona. It's not the Bible Belt anymore. You know, it wasn't as easy or as cool to be a Christian and making such loud declarations wasn't as popular or as easy to do. So fast forward a year ahead, and I'm driving down from Mount Lemmon, having gotten caught by the cops, smoking weed and partying on Mount Lemmon. And I remember driving down the hill, and tears started coming to my eyes, and, and by God's grace, He started to convict me of my arrogance. And the need to be reminded, you don't got this. You can't make these loud declarations on, and, and look down your nose at everyone else and how everyone else has got it all wrong and you're this good person. I think sometimes God reveals that to us. And he reveals that, no, he is the only way. And sometimes for us to see that, he has to expose our false confidence, our false courage, our false religiosity. And that's what happens here with Peter. And I love that, that again, Jesus just kind of hears him out. He hears Peter's arrogance and he goes, no, you will. You will deny me. In fact, three times. And he foretells what will happen. And so Jesus is already preparing the way for his followers to understand what it means to trust in him. 
Guys, the big religious idea here is something that, um, very simply put, I want to explain. It's not a simple idea. It's called total depravity. And somebody once told me that reality is our friends, right? Like, reality is your friend, and that applies in every aspect of life, right? Like, for me, I once tried out for basketball, and the coach kind of took me over and was like, reality is your friend. Like, don't do that. And so, you know, I, like, in every way in life, it's just helpful to know who you are, know your limits, know some of these things. Well, on a much deeper, real place, we need to understand where we stand in, before Almighty God and who we naturally are. This idea of total depravity simply comes down to the fact of recognizing, I don't have what it takes. In fact, if left to my own vices, at the end of the day... I will choose not God. And I will try to go at it on my own. I will try to do my best to be right with God and to be right with others. I will do it on my own. And so God lovingly exposes that and reveals that, no, He alone in His grace, His undeserved favor in His pursuit is our only hope for eternal life and for life every day thereafter in following God and obeying Him and trusting Jesus and living all of life for Him. And so that's what's happening here, is, 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 is Peter and you're in my false confidence and false faith and false courage is being exposed and revealed. And then it continues on there. So Jesus says, all right, let's go. So picking up with me in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus brings his closest followers, Peter and James and John. These are the three that have been with him. They've seen him um, in a transfiguration. They saw when he, was, when he was presented in his glory alongside Elijah and Moses. So these guys have been in it with him. Again, this is like the studs, right? This is the, this is the, the most you know, churchy people, if you will. These are the people that should get it, that should be faithful. But they're not. They fall asleep, we see later. He comes on. Jesus comes back to them, in fact, three times and says, Guys, you're sleeping. I asked you to pray. And then he goes away and he prays and he comes back and says, Guys, why are you still sleeping? I asked you to pray. And that happens. And I think, though, what we get a glimpse into an intimate picture of Jesus and the abandonment that he will experience in order to reveal and to establish the fact that he alone is faithful. That his closest followers prove faithless. And in this moment, we see the crushing weight of sin. Jesus is anguished over the reality of sin. Elsewhere, we're told that he bleeds drops of sweat. That he's so torn up over this that he is, he is, he is, he is bleeding. He, he is crushed under this. And he says... Father, Dad, if there's any other way, let it be so. In that moment, you see the intimacy between Jesus and the Father. All the more when Jesus is betrayed on the cross, 
even by the Father for you and me. When the Father turns and Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? You see that Jesus is not just a bystander here. He's not just a passive recipient of this. Some have even kind of pejoratively referred to the death on the cross of Jesus as being like divine, you know, child abuse. Well, that's not at all the case. You see Jesus' activity in this, even his initiation here, and he's coming before the Father, and he's recognizing, Dad, you're in control. You, you know what needs to happen, but if there's any other way, let it be. And of course, he recognizes there is indeed no other way. Guys, let us pause for a moment, though, and embrace and understand, what do we usually do with sin? We water it down. Man, I slipped up. I messed around. You know, I kind of stumbled. You know, if you could pray for me, it's, you know, nobody's perfect. And we use these, these kind of cutesy terms for sin that minimizes, that I think leads us to miss the need for Jesus and Him being the only way because we, we want to we wanna gloss it over because it's safer and easier. But look to Jesus right before he goes to the cross to understand the weight and the reality of sin. It's not cute. It's awful. It's destructive. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And that is being revealed here through Jesus coming before the Father. And yet what do we see? A beautiful picture where Jesus says, not my will, but your will. Remember what happened in the beginning. What happened in Genesis chapter 3? What has Peter been declaring earlier? What have every person been saying to Jesus throughout the entire um, walking through Mark? Not your will, but my will. What does every one of us in our core say as we go through life? Okay, thanks God, I take your advice, I'll take it into consideration, but I'm going to figure this out. My finances, my marriage, my relationships, my, my job, my vocation, everything I do, I'll take your, I'll take your advice, Thank you. you can be my counselor, but I'll decide ultimately. That's total depravity. That's our nature. And yet Jesus, in His goodness, undoes what you and I naturally choose. Not my will, Father, but your will. This is a reversal of what happened in the garden. In this garden, in the new garden, Jesus undoes the effects of sin. He undoes the fall by submitting perfectly to the Father's will. And we see here perfectly Peter's faithlessness overshadowed by the faithfulness of Jesus. Not just Peter's faithlessness, Adam and Eve's faithlessness, humanity's faithlessness, your and my faithlessness. And then Jesus says, alright guys, let's go. They're coming. Let, let, let's go. And, and, he, and he hears them and then we pick up in verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And so Jesus is, um, is there, he's praying with his, with his friends. They fall asleep, they're faithless, they're, they're, they're cowardly. Jesus even says the, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think this is kind of setting the table for understanding our need for the Holy Spirit, even to live the Christian life, is meant to be dependent 
on God's good gifts and on his empowerment. And then he goes on, he says, let's go. These, these people are coming. And he says, Judas came, one of the 12. The author wants to remind us, right? Because Judas, like you don't usually name your son Judas, okay? That's not one of the popular names because we just get, you know, Judas betrayed Jesus. But let's remember, like, this is one of Jesus' closest followers, one of his closest friends, one of the twelve. He's, he's been through it with Jesus. And yet he betrayed him. And even here we see a picture of betrayal. And I know that many of us in this room have experienced betrayal in some form. In a marriage, in our relationships with our parents, our relationships with our friends. And we wonder, can God really relate? Does God know what I'm going through? And we experience the result of sin in the world today. Brokenness. And we wonder, what's, what's, what do we make of it? Well, hear me. Jesus has been betrayed. And he continues to give good news. We're told in Hebrews chapter 2 that we have a great high priest who was tempted and suffered but is able to help. We have a mediator. We have a way to God the Father. A way to true life as God created it to be. Who doesn't sit on his high horse like we think and just sits up there and like, yeah, it must be easy. That's Jesus. No, Jesus was betrayed, in this case by one of his closest friends, even by his family, by you and me, and by his created world. The people that he created to love him and know him turned our backs on him. So he understands betrayal. And the good news is that when he marches forward, he goes to the cross and endures betrayal and says, it is finished. The good news that we have to rest on, we need to sit in the harshness of the bad news, but we need to understand that the good news is Jesus put an end to sin in all its effects and said, there is redemption. There is freedom from the way that you think the world has to function. No, there's a new way. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. That sounds like a cutesy little bumper sticker, right? Jesus is the way. You've experienced betrayal? Hey, just have faith, right? Jesus is the way. We don't get, it's like, yeah, thanks for that. How does that work out? Well, here we see the dots connecting a little bit better. Where Jesus experiences betrayal so that you and I can be accepted and can walk in forgiveness and can walk in acceptance and can walk in hope. But again, Peter and you and me are tempted to to miss that Jesus alone is the way. And so it continues on there. And Jesus, um, it says in verse 46, that they came to him and they laid hands on him in order to capture him. They treated him like a robber, like a thief. Jesus has hands laid on him. Have we seen Jesus' hands laying on anyone else throughout Mark? Time and time again. Jesus has come down to the least of these. He's, he's approached the leper. He's approached um, the woman who's bleeding. He's approached the unclean, the least of these. And he has lovingly laid his hands on them to heal and to bring life. And yet in return, Jesus has hands laid on him in anger, in malice, and in an ultimate desire to kill him. And he is enduring what he does not deserve so that you and I can receive the gift of what you and I do not deserve. 
life, faith, hope, freedom. And this happens, and there's this event, right? This one of his followers gets, you know, crazy and chops off an ear and all that stuff. And it's likely Peter. Mark doesn't say that here in this moment, but we, we assume it's, it's, it's Peter. And even there, right, there's a, there's a flash of courage, a moment of courage, right? Some of us have experienced that. You're in, you're in, you're in traffic, and some, you know, some construction truck cuts you over, and you're, like, honking and yelling, pull over, and then, like, reality sets in, you're like, oh, shoot, never mind, I was just saying hi, you know, I thought, and and so, um, you know, Peter, ultimately, we might think, oh, he's courageous, but no, he's emotional in the moment, he makes a loud declaration, this is it, I'm going to change my life now, right, so many people, especially in, in drug abuse and addiction and in whatever kind of sin we fall in, I've seen this, I've done this. I've lived this. We make these bold emotional declarations and then it's still dependent upon ourself and our own strength and our own effort and our own, and, and our own courage. And eventually it's exposed and, and we struggle. I think we see that in our lives, in our relationships, in our families, in our world, in our city. And yet Peter, his faithlessness will be exposed and yet even here he fled, right? It ends there that everybody left. In verse 50, we see that Jesus is left alone. He stands strong. And then just kind of a a seemingly funny couple of verses in verse 51 and 52. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And we get caught up in this, and we want to know who it was, and why isn't he wearing underwear? Like, I guess, you know, going commando was a thing. 2,000 years ago, still, and it's like, what, who is this guy? Why is he running around naked? But the, the main point that Mark wants to make clear here is that whoever this guy was, which I personally think is Mark, the author of this, he was a young man. He was likely Peter's secretary, and so it, it makes sense that he would be kind of following along at a distance. And um, But I don't know. That's not the main point. The author doesn't even really want us to get caught up in who it was or why he's not wearing underwear. The author wants to get caught up in the point of how terrible this situation is. The fact that in this scary moment where people's ears are getting locked off and swords are there and crowds are coming and anger is filling the air and the weight of sin, the sin of the world has fallen on one particular place and on one particular man and nobody can withstand this. But Jesus alone, everybody flees. His closest followers, even this man, this bystander, sees is like, it's, it's better to be shamefully running around naked than to be associated with Jesus. And so it continues on that Jesus now alone, standing before the religious authorities, the most powerful people, We pick up in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now let's just again see this contrast here. Peter's following at a distance. Such a picture of so many of our discipleship. Our idea of Jesus. Yeah, I'll follow him, but, you know, over here. Like, 
you know, maybe the select few, the, the extremists, the, the ultra-religious, the really good people can, you know, do the crazy stuff. But I'll just, you know, I'll do church on Sundays. I'll do Bible study every once in a while. I'll do my thing. I'll, and I'll follow it at distance. And that's what Peter's doing. That's what we've seen time and time again, this glimpse into our version of discipleship. And Jesus says, no, come to me. Go all in and trust your whole life to me. And what is Peter doing? He's warming himself again, a stark contrast. Remember his bold declaration? Not me, Jesus. I'll stay strong. I'll do it. All these other punks, they'll do it, but I'll be with you. And what is he doing? He's looking out for number one. He's cold, so he's warming himself by the fire. He's staying close enough to Jesus just to be safe, just in case the kingdom comes in the way that he thought it would, just in case Jesus, you know, all of a sudden does some magic and zaps everyone, you know, like the emperor or whatever with lightning, and everyone goes down, and then Peter wants to jump up and be like, yeah, I'm with you, I'm with you, I was right here, right? He's keeping a distance, and yet Jesus is standing faithful, strong, courageous, and Peter is sitting there warming himself while Jesus is exposed before his eventual killers. And then it says in verse 55, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. I love this, because it's showing that even their, even their false accusations against Jesus don't hold up. Like, they can't even get it together, right? Like, they've got this plan. Hey guys, here's what we'll do. Okay, you say this, you say that, I'll step up and say this, and then they get going, and they're like, well, wait, and then, and then someone's like, no, dude, that's not your part, you, you, you stole my line, and you, you got it all messed up, and they're, they're bumbling over even their effort to, to, to arrest and, and ultimately crucify Jesus. They need his confession. They need Jesus' help here. Okay, they're bumbling through this. Again, Jesus, the cross is God's initiation. It didn't just happen to Jesus. And so they're, they're stumbling through this. They can't get it right. And then the high priest says in verse 60, He stood up in the midst and asked Jesus a pointed question. Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And this is to fulfill a prophecy in Isaiah 23. We're told that, that, that um, Jesus would be, would be led like a, like a lamb to the slaughter. And that he would be quiet and silent. Right? You and I don't stand up when injustice is served toward us. We need to be heard. We need to be right. We need to make our point. And yet Jesus confidently, pointedly is led like a sheep to the slaughter. Like the sacrificial lamb that he is. Like the Passover we heard about last week would be would bring up memory of that, 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 that a lamb, a perfect spotless lamb would have to be slain in order for God to pass over the sins of those who would be called his own. And Jesus is clearly that perfect sacrifice. That once and for all final sacrifice. And he's silent. And then the high priest asks him again, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. 
And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. The one who laid his hands lovingly on the broken and the needy to heal and to restore has hands laid on him in anger, in mockery. Again, Jesus' confession of who he is is needed in order for him to go on the cross. And he makes it abundantly clear. He says, I am. This is the, this is the Greek version of, of, of Yahweh, the Hebrew for God's, God saying, I am who I am. God declaring his perfect nature, his perfect name, his perfect identity. And once again, Jesus here clearly faced with this questioning declares, I'm not just one of your prophets that you will kill. I'm not just an example to be followed. I'm not just a martyr. I am almighty God, the creator of all things. Come here to do what you cannot do, to make right what you have broken, to be betrayed so that you can be accepted, to be killed so that you can have life. And they tear their clothes and anger. Let's just be real here. The crowds join in. Remember the crowds throughout Mark? Do you remember how the crowds sometimes got excited about Jesus? Jesus, the magician is here. Jesus, come and do some tricks. Jesus, come and entertain us. Jesus, come and heal us. All right? The blessing Jesus is pretty easy to accept. But the ruling Jesus, the real Jesus, who brings blessing and healing through death, he calls for us to go all in. And these people, the crowds, the religious authorities, even his followers say, I don't know if I want that Jesus. And so he's given up. And then in a stark contrast, though we see in this moment, Jesus stays strong. True faith. True courage. And then ending with a stark contrast, Peter denies Jesus. Peter's warming himself around the fire, right? He's hanging out with the guards, and a girl comes up and says, hey, 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 that's one of Jesus' followers. You can hear by his accent, that's one, of, that's one of the Jesus people. And Peter's like, no, 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 I'm not, no, I'm not. Right? He's facing a girl. It's again, in this moment, the author is reminding us that in this society, in that day, women didn't carry a whole lot of clout. We've seen Jesus elevate women and, 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 and explain the image of God that is born on all of his people and the favor he's given to women. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. But here in this moment, the author puts it in there so we see that even a least of these, even a woman whose accusation wouldn't hold a ton of weight, Jesus crumbles. He's cowardly. He's fearful. And in stark contrast to Jesus right before that, who was he facing? the religious authorities, the people that had all the power, and he stays strong, he stays true. And Peter, in all his bold declarations of courage, crumbles. And he says, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And he rejects Jesus. And then it says that, um, that, that Jesus saw him. In verse 72, immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter broke down and wept. Elsewhere we're told that Jesus actually sees him and they, and they lock eyes. 
But here, Peter hears the, the, the crow of the rooster and remembers. Remember? Jesus says, you're all going to fall away. Peter says, no, 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 not me. I'm so godly. I have my quiet time every day. I memorize scripture. I do it all. I have the shirt. I have the bumper sticker. I'm a good Christian person. And Jesus is like, no, no, you will. In fact, the, 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 the rooster will crow. And, 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 and then the rooster crows. And Peter is reminded. And in verse 72, we see good news here. And we transition into our time of baptism with good news. You and I might be wondering, how in the world is this good news? How are we about to celebrate? Man, Peter is weeping. The last word of chapter 14 is wept. How is that good news? Because again, reality is our friend. Understanding where you and I stand, in and of ourselves, apart from the undeserved affection and love, and favor of God is broken and helpless and wounded and unable, is faithless and cowardly. There's no room here for Christian culture to overshadow that. There's no room here for putting on a face to overshadow that. That's been peeled back and we're left, like Peter, recognizing, God, I don't have what it takes. I'm not faithful. But Jesus is faithful. And the good news is that Jesus, when he went to the cross and died in your and my place to make new what has been broken, he knows every sin that you and I have committed, will commit, are committing, and will one day commit. He knows that, and he says, I'm covering that. He says, your faithlessness is covered by my faithfulness. So tomorrow is informed by that day, the day of the cross. And so today, we end with the good news in light of the bad news. Weeping, hopefully right now, understanding the weight of sin that Jesus had to go to the cross for. There was no other way in the garden pleading with his Father. Is there any other way? Let it pass. No, there is no other way. Jesus alone is the way, the truth and the life. So as we see that, as we're reminded of our brokenness, of our faithlessness, of our cowardice, we have nowhere else to look but to Jesus. Though we are weak, He is strong. Though we are faithless, He is faithful. Though we are cowardly, He is courageous. And through Him alone, there is life. And so now what we're going to do when we celebrate baptisms is we rejoice in that, perhaps weeping and smiling simultaneously, recognizing our sin and our need for Jesus, and then joyfully responding in the good news that he has indeed made a way. So we will have baptisms right now, and I'm going to transition. I'm going to release the parents in a moment. Don't go yet. When I pray, um, parents, you can go and get your kids and bring them in here, because this is going to be uh, an all-church celebration right now. And here's what happens in baptism, okay? What I say to someone when they're baptized is I say, do you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that he has died for your sins to give you eternal life and that through him alone you can have life in its full? And someone says, yes, I believe. And we say when someone is baptized, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
dead with Christ and raised again to newness of life. The old man has passed away, the new man has come. And baptism is a symbol publicly of what Jesus has done. And, hear me, a reminder for everyone who is a follower of Christ. We don't just celebrate one day of baptism, but we, we look back and are reminded of our covenant relationship with God. Where through faith in Jesus, we are a new creation. Look at me. You are alive in Christ. And as someone is baptized, we remember that sin brings death. The old man is unable and faithless and cowardly. And that man is put to death. And so when someone goes under the water, we see that. And then they come out and we all cheer and we all clap and we all celebrate as a picture of the good news that life comes through Jesus. That He alone is the way. Amen? Amen. Amen. So now, as I pray, I want to challenge you. If you are a follower of Jesus and you have never been baptized, today is the day. It's an act of obedience. Jesus said to His people, go make disciples of me in all the world, baptizing them. So we honor that. Honestly, we didn't even know if someone was going to be baptized today until this uh, last night. But in faith, we as a church want to come before God and say, yes, we will have opportunity for some to be baptized. And again, if you're a follower of Christ and you've never been baptized and perhaps you've been holding out for the perfect time or for it all to align, that's really not the biblical picture. In fact, in Acts chapter 8, you see um, one of Jesus' followers um, Philip is going along in this crazy event. He meets a person, a stranger, an Ethiopian eunuch, and he explains the gospel to him. And this guy says, how can I understand these words unless someone explains it to me? And I trust, perhaps by God's grace, today through a stuttering preacher, his word has been revealed to you and you have understood. And perhaps you've put your faith in Christ today. Or perhaps you've put your faith in Christ at some point and you've never been baptized, that Ethiopian eunuch says, here is some water. What prevents me from being baptized? And I want to present to you this question. If you're a follower of Christ, you made that decision today or 10 years ago, and you've never been baptized, here is some water. What prevents you from being baptized? We, brought, um, we have some shirts here for you, so you can put on a baptism shirt. We even brought some shorts. Some of them are mine, so you, if you can fit, fit into my shorts... Um, can wear them, or that might be kind of funny, big guy trying to squeeze into some small shorts, but some other people brought some shorts too, or you can just wear your jeans, and we have some extra towels, extra shirts, extra stuff, and I just want to leave you as we pray, how do you respond to the good news that Jesus alone is the way? And so um, let's pray, let's celebrate some baptisms, let's respond individually and corporately as God's people in light of His good news, the good news of Jesus. So parents, when I pray, if you'll go ahead and get your kids and bring them in here, and um, you can explain baptism to them, and just celebrate, and let them sing, and run around, and we're going to have a good time. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for um, this day. Thank you for your word. Um, thank you that uh, we come humbly before you, recognizing that you alone are the way. Lord, even this massive chunk of scripture, I didn't know how it was all going to work together with baptisms, and then you just revealed the opportunity to see death and life right next to each other. Or the way of this world, the way of ourselves, the way of saying, no, I got this. 
is death and betrayal and hopelessness. But right there is the good news of Jesus, who is courageous and faithful. And Lord, so through you, we have life. So now as we have baptisms, Lord, I pray for individuals in here. Again, I don't know where everyone's coming from this morning. But I know that you do. I pray that you are speaking to people, that you are leading people. I pray, Lord, that we will celebrate corporately, change lives. And the hope we have, the hope of Tucson, the hope of the world, the hope of our marriages, the hope of our homes, the true hope of Jesus. Lord, we respond and celebrate and worship and pray in his name. Amen.